You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled At the Intersection of Journalism and Open Source Investigation. The talk features Jake Godin, an open source reporter and producer at NUSI, a national newsroom in the United States. Jake leads the award-winning NUSI Plus Bellingcat video series and spoke to us about his experiences as an open source researcher. The stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella on the Bellingcat Discord server on November 10th, 2022. Cool. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's funny because it's just, you know, we talk like pretty much every day. So yeah, <laughs> just we're a buddies. normal chat between us. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's cool to, I mean, I'm happy to talk about like the, essentially what it is that I, I mean, what I do at Newsy and how open source kind of, uh, I kind of like try to combine journalism uh, with like as, Newsy being like a traditional journalism outlet, uh, well, video, uh, you know, video news, but, um, and how that kind of, inter- what I do at Newsy intersects with open source stuff and how I use open source kind of like investigation techniques to do this series that we work on together, Newsy plus Bellingcat, uh, which we'll have to come up with a new name once we scripts news because we won't be Newsy anymore. But um, then uh, kind of like how I work, you know, open source into that stuff. So. I figured I'd kind of start with talking about how I started at Newsy. Um, so I went through journalism school uh, here in the States. And um, after, grad, like, in journalism school, you, it's, it's interesting because, in, you know, you don't have to be like, it's not like a lawyer or a um, doctor or anything. You don't have a license to be a journalist. So it's like anybody can be a journalist. So, uh, but it helps when you go to the school it helps like when you go to j school it helps you like kind of pick up a lot of the basics of journalism and like techniques and useful stuff and like ethics which is important and you don't really learn you learn some stuff that kind of intersects with open source but isn't it's never like it was never like said oh yeah this is like a technique that you can use to like further your reporting it was never like here's how you can geolocate or something so I didn't really have any like basic training in doing anything that's really open source, aside from like just innate stuff that's within journalism, like filing a, FOI- a Freedom of Information Act request or something like that, which is kind of open source e and like doing research, which a lot of open source kind of work is just it's it 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 shares the theme with journalism as being like a very research heavy thing. Um, so working at Newsy initially. I was just doing a lot of different stories um, about all sorts of stuff going on, uh, trying to do like international related stories. But I would always have to be finding videos that were like related to this. Since we were working working in video news, I was always having to find like videos of stuff happening throughout the world or whatever story I was trying to report on. And we didn't have (laughs) like kind of skimping on the budget, but we didn't really have like access to Associated Press B-roll or like Reuters footage or uh, we, the main thing we had was like Getty images. And so if something was happening in like Afghanistan, I would have to find maybe video of like Ashraf Ghani like speaking or something like that. 
the president or you know leader of Afghanistan speaking. And it turns out that they have their own YouTube page. And so I would just kind of go go there, grab the footage, and then use that for whatever story I was working on. And that, and I would I would do that for different governments. Like we didn't have easy access to footage from like you know uh, Germany, like Germany's government. But it turns out they have a pretty accessible like B-roll site that you can get news footage from. Same thing for France. So it and it's like all of the you know U.S. government's websites also have all this like accessible footage that's just like thrown out on YouTube or thrown out on. Um, specific sites like uh, the U.S. military uses a site called DVIDs, and it has so much military-related B-roll that, like, if you ever have to pay for it, you shouldn't because you should just use DVIDs because it's all fair use. It's all like able to be used by newsrooms, and so that kind of like having to search for all that stuff uh, early on was like kind of a I didn't really really realize that it the time but it's kind of like doing open source research it's like trying to find uh visuals that kind of line up with something that you're trying to look into and you know finding different avenues to access those visuals and so i feel like that was like kind of my first instance of working with open source type reporting um and it kind of gradually moved on into like geolocation and also finding more specific visuals that were like less government related and more like related to specific events like chemical weapon attacks in Syria, which happened to be where I started moving on to trying to uh, like, there was like a chlorine attack in like near in, in Idlib province or something like that. I would try to geolocate it and figure out where exactly it was in order to verify where it was so that if I was to use that in a video, um, like a story, I could make sure I knew what I was, I was showing something that happened recently, not like a chlorine attack that happened like last month. Um, and that's actually how I ended up interacting a lot with Elliot Higgins on um, Twitter. It's because I was just, there would be a chlorine attack and I would have this list of Facebook groups that I was following or these YouTube pages that I was following and that were keeping track of like specific events in different parts of Syria. So, because there weren't a lot of, it was a lot of people posting footage or people posting updates on Facebook and social media and YouTube in order to get the word out in Syria. And that was kind of the way you had to follow events in that conflict in like 2014, 2015, 2016, because of course, reporters, it was harder and harder for them to go into that area. And so working from, I was in Missouri at the time in the U.S., uh, working from Missouri, I was able to report on these stories that were going on in Syria from my desk because I was following certain pages, certain people in Syria uh, on on different social media sites, and I could keep up to date on what was happening through them because it wouldn't just be one person said something happened and then it was just all quiet. It would be it would kind of light up and like first it'd be like the local town that would post, oh, there was a chlorine attack, and then it would be the province, like a, a page that was representing the province would post that there was an attack. And then there would be the local, like different video and images from local, like uh, the white helmets, they would upload something or like a local journalist on the ground there um, from the area would upload something. And so you could kind of follow the path of like an attack, like a barrel bombing or a chlorine attack or some sort of like, you know, uh, massacre that was happening. 
and follow the path of how it was being covered uh, on the ground there. And using that, you can verify that something, you know, you could by geolocating it and making sure where, you know, it, what you figured out where these images were taken, you could ensure that you were saying accurately that this event happened here. Um, and so doing that enough, I eventually realized I, I would do I would end up doing these kinds of geolocations or something, but I wouldn't really be able to do a story on it because uh, essentially my editors would say, "Oh, you should be doing something on Europe or you know whatever." Some you can't just constantly do stories about Syria um, as much as I would have liked to. But eventually, I pitched this series to essentially working with Bellingcat because I figured we do video at Newsy and uh but I was essentially the only person doing this kind of like open source work which was you know geolocating or chronolocating or trying to find you know uh figure out what verifying the stuff that was happening in Syria but Bellingcat had tons of people doing that or you know they actually had a whole team dedicated to doing that but they didn't have any video <laughs> they weren't producing videos um at least not regularly so I figured it might be good for us to kind of work together. And so I reached out to Elliot and he thought it was a good idea. And so we started doing, uh, we started trying to do videos together. And it's kind of a, I mean, the thing about open source is it, it takes a while. It's not something you can exactly do at a breaking news pace, but it's also, occasionally we have done breaking news stories that are kind of like uh, open source related. Uh, it's a really big time crunch. Um, it's not, it's not exactly fun, but, um, it's also important because when something happens like, uh, the port explosion in Lebanon and Beirut, that was a big, um, like a lot of people were wondering like what happened or, you know, there's these videos coming out showing like missile, like supposedly missiles, like hit the town. People were like, oh, it was an attack. And you, if you double check those videos, you can see like, no, those are fake, you know, people photoshopped or used a, a video editing software to put that missile in, into the video to make it look like it. And they did it kind of sloppily. So in that case, it was important to get something out. So uh, I think at that time, Bellingcat released two articles related to... Uh, oh, sorry. my uh, the, Double checking my computer. Okay, cool. We can still uh, hear you. Screen. Yeah, yeah, I was. I thought it my. I thought my computer shut off for a second because it <laughs> just went to the screen blacked out. But anyways, mm. so it was important to get out like a, a piece quickly at that point because we needed to essentially clear the air on like, oh, we we we've looked at these videos. There, it's obviously there was no missile attack. Uh, what ended up happening was, you know, these silos. There was a large explosion, and you know, we still don't know exact cause. Or this this warehouse, there was a large explosion, but. While we don't know the exact cause, we know it wasn't a missile. Because there was like a fire, then there was like a, you know, there was a smaller explosion first, and then there was a huge one. And so in that case, it was important to get out like something in a breaking news speed. Uh, also similar was January 6th. We ended up getting a video out like the day after because we saw that there were all these videos showing people storming the Capitol, and we needed to explain what happened, uh, especially because, you know, people were, you know, people died. So in order to kind of clear that up, we uh, kind of tracked people through as they kind of went through the Capitol and kind of followed the different videos that were available showing that. Um, but some other investigations take longer, like the Tigray piece it, uh, that 
I worked on with Giancarlo and uh, Alium at BBC. We uh, took like, a, I think, a month on, in order to do that. So starting this series, this Newsy Plus Balancat series, um, kind of allowed us to, allowed me at Newsy's end to do open source work uh, since, and it gave me kind of like extra help in doing it because I was the only one invest, like focused on doing open source uh, like reporting. And it allowed Bellingcat, which had plenty of people doing open source research, to kind of get out, have a new medium to like essentially tell their stories. So with video, and those videos are edited by Jennifer Smart, who is behind me actually, but um, she's really good at video editing. And so it turns out that video is actually a really good way to do, I think, to do open source work. Uh, because open open source is so visual, you're 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 looking up. I mean, you're looking up visual videos or images in order to verify something that happened, and you could write about it in like traditional news, like sense, like in a text piece, or you could talk about it on screen on like an anchor on camera for video. But showing it, showing like a geolocation, showing a zoom in on satellite imagery. And you know, kind of doing what is the stereotypical thing to do in open source research, which is using colored boxes to annotate things that match. I mean, you can do that in video and get your point across. And that's the powerful thing about open source research in journalism is that you're showing how you know what the, what happened, how you know this, how you know this massacre took place on this cliffside is because, well. These these mountains in the background of the video match up with these mountains on Peak Visor, so it's it's an extremely like they they they're soup, they work together very well, and that's why I think in uh, we're starting to see more newsrooms use like have teams that are uh, whether whatever the name is where have they have, they're setting up teams that are like specifically trying to use more open source work. Um, I mean. Elliot with Brown Moses, which was the precursor of Bellingcat, he kind of started doing open source work in a very like open public manner on his, you know, on his site. And it was, it's kind of like a fusion of journalism and just like research. But we didn't really start seeing newsrooms adopt it in like a, a full on sense until it was, I mean, we have a, the biggest one in the US is probably the visual investigations team with the New York Times. And they have a lot of resources to throw at that. And so they do like great stories. And they have people on the ground as well that are like able to essentially help out with their stories because they have people in these different areas. But uh, BBC had Africa Eye. Uh, France 24 has their observers team, which is uh, they do, they don't do videos as much. I think they're starting to do more, but they have like, they've been doing these like almost fact checks for a long time using um, open source stuff. Uh, Washington Post has a team, The Guardian, I think, has a team. So, um, and, and Newsy has Newsy plus Bellingcat. <laughs> Essentially, it's just me, though, right, and me and Jen uh, working on it. But um, so all these newsrooms are starting to pick up, like, open source type teams uh, that are utilizing the tools that I think open source research utilizes. Uh, you know, it's, like, common to do geolocations to, like, figure out stuff. 
newsrooms, it was kind of a new thing. It still is, I think, but it's starting to catch on. Um, and that's why, like, I think, I mean, it, it works out well because when you think about journalism with like the who, what, when, where, and why, it's you can use open source tools to essentially augment your reporting on each of those. It's like with the where, uh, geolocation, you can figure it out and actually see where it was. Um, the what and the who, you could use social media to kind of like go make, ensure that you figure out like who somebody is and what they've like talked about in the past. And then like the when, you could do chronolocation. And that all kind of helps you figure out the why. I think with open source and journalism, it's it's more of like uh, they both rely on each other to make a stronger story a news like a stronger news piece and i think it's also it's an interesting format because you get groups like forensic architecture who they do really really good technical like they do video too uh video on like these events that happened um wherever and it's like extremely well done and i'm so jealous every time i see their videos because i'm like man i wish we had like the tools to do that um, but also it's like a 20 minute long video and it's kind of just like this person talking, it's almost like a research paper turned into, uh, like a video. And I, I love it. Um, because I'm really into that kind of stuff. I think it's not, it's less applicable to like a mass audience because you kind of, the, the point of news is to like take technical jargon or technical terms and kind of boil it down to something that more people could, it, it makes it more accessible. And so that's where like I think news and open source kind of work together is that you have these you have these more technical things that happen and you could go very in depth technically explaining why you know this, how you know this. But if you can also get it out in a way and tell that in a way that's more accessible to like just, you know, anybody um, that doesn't have to don't they don't feel like they have to read through like a science paper in order to get it, then I think that helps you know, tell the story or whatever you're trying to tell. Um, and, but I think there's also a place for having these very technical breakdowns for people like me and people at Bellingcat because it's, I mean, it's fascinating. And uh, it also helps everybody, you know, if you're reading through that, it helps you improve your own uh, methods and stuff and finding new tools and stuff. But when it comes to like, just trying to tell a story, I think it works in a better way to like have that all distilled into a story or like a, eight minute video or 10 minute video that can kind of um, explain it to the more like a layman. And um, there's also something, it doesn't necessarily have to be video. Uh, I think open source work within journalism can be done in a more of a, uh, like a text uh, or like an image based format. I just, I think it works particularly well in video because you're showing exactly what you're talking about. But I've seen with like the Times, they've done, they'll do pages where they'll do like a quick article after an, something, after an incident or something happens, and they'll just have text explaining what's happening, and then they'll show like small gifs or like a, like a little animated uh, like uh, image to show like essentially what would be in the, what would be in a video, but they kind of condense it down into like an image that they could put on a page, uh, which I think is an effective way to do. Uh, to tell, like, to explain what happened during an incident. Um, of course, it would be good as video. But. 
but um yeah i think uh there's also an advantage to doing open source where you have um, the ability to actually go places uh, and like go on the ground and talk to people. I um, do a lot of my work where I'm just sitting in here in DC. Well, I, I'm in, based in Washington, DC, where I just do my, I try to work on stories from my desk. But I can also, we've also started to try and do more work where we can actually go out and talk to people who are affected um, by whatever it is, that story that we're talking about. So a story that we did uh, with Newsy plus Spelling Cat recently was on Barbuda, an island in the Bahamas, or an island in the Caribbean, where there was this golf course they're building on it, or people are like, this company is building a giant luxury golf course on their island. And it's, it's like the main, the first like huge development that's coming up on this island and people don't really want it there. And there's, has to do with land rights and stuff. And so while you can see the golf course being built on satellite imagery pretty easily and watch as it's developed, and then you can find plenty of articles from like the local news talking about people not wanting it to be there. Uh, we actually went there and spoke with some of the, like the main stakeholders um, who like a, a local environmentalist who's opposed to it just to, so, when we released the story, it was like a stronger piece because it actually had like some of the main stakeholders who were involved. Or when we did a Newsy Bellingcat piece about um, the Anglophone crisis in Cameroon, we, we can't, couldn't actually go there ourselves. Um, kind of too small for that, I feel like. But um, we spoke to like a dozen people on Zoom in order to like kind of take in what they were saying. And then we would also, of course, if they claimed that there was like a massacre here, we would try to verify that using um, open source or like trying to just double check their you know claims. But I think that also helped strengthen the story, uh, especially in a place like um, Anglophone region of Cameroon, where it's kind of hard to find a lot of open source stuff because the satellite imagery isn't super great and there's not a ton of people uh, putting out videos. But I think those are, so it's, whereas I think there's a place for like, you can do open source kind of work in journalism at, from like a distance and from like, um, do it in a way that you don't really have to leave your chair. I think it's also strong. There's, it's like a, a strong way to do it is to actually have people on the ground in places where you're talking about stuff. And so you can both like confirm something happened from satellite imagery or geolocation, but also talk to those people on the ground who are affected and get their side of the story. And they may, might even have like access to something that could even help strengthen the story even more. Like maybe they had a CCTV, you know, camera somewhere so that they were, they, that saw what happened. Uh, I feel like the New York Times in their large amount of resources that they have is able to do that a little bit more easier than a small group like us at Newsy Plus Bellingcat, but I also think, uh, and that's what makes some of their stories very, very strong, like, is when they are actually able to, like, see these people on the ground and have somebody on the ground there. I think when they did their investigation into the, um, into the U.S. strike in, F, uh, in Kabul before the, during the withdrawal, they had somebody there on the ground who was able to talk to people in the, in the neighborhood who I think had access to cameras that 
caught the vehicle as it was entering the lot before it was hit with the airstrike or with the drone strike. And um, so, yeah, it's like a, almost like a, it's like a mix of open source work and just traditional journalism that I think can tell a really strong story. And I think in a way, Bellingcat went from uh, doing more like kind of research heavy pieces, um, but Bellingcat's kind of moved more towards doing kind of like working journalism, traditional journalism aspects into more of their stories. Um, not just from like Newsy plus Bellingcat's end, but like just on Belling the things that Bellingcat does um, has started to like uh, incorporate more traditional journalism stuff like rights of reply, which is important where you, you know, ask somebody about claims that you're making against them or like interviewing people just in, including their quotes and whatnot, which is, I think, a, an important thing to do when you're, because uh, there are people that are experts in things that, you know, you can't be an expert in everything. So, you know, incorporating somebody who's an expert at audio wavelengths, you know, in order to figure out the sounds, you know, of like a bullet coming by, it's like double checking that. So. It's a it's an important way, or it, I think both fields can kind of learn from each other, and by working and utilizing each like tool set from like traditional journalism and from open source, you can tell stronger stories or you know really stronger reports or whatnot. Um, yeah, it's and there's also just I think they also share some like similarities just on their base like something that I think there was a previous stage talk about this, but it's like ethics of open source, um, open source investigation is like important. It's you making sure that you don't like accidentally reveal somebody's identity or something during protests. And I think ethics is kind of like the bedrock. It's like one of the main pillars of journalism. Like that's what is important about journalism is like making sure to, you know, you're not being biased or making sure you're not like taking gifts from people or whatever, you know, what we consider like a bribe or something like that in order to tell a better story. And it's like, there's also, of course, the ethics of like making sure, ensuring, protecting your sources and stuff. So there's kind of some overlap between the two. And I think that's also what makes both of them work so well together. Um, I think journalism can benefit from open source kind of techniques and tool sets in a lot of ways, um, kind of on its base like verify just basic verification is extremely important and i think that it should be something a tool that every journalist should know um especially in like this age of where you know pictures you know social media and uh video is so like prevalent that it could be easy to like fool somebody i think as all journalists should have basic verification skills so that when it comes to viral images or breaking news, they're not accidentally spreading false information. I think a good example I always go back, or like think of is the like classic, and this is a US centric example, but like the classic uh, shark on the interstate during a hurricane thing where people post an image of a shark on the interstate that's flooded. And it's like, yeah, it's so look at that, it's crazy. And it's like, no, 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 that's a fake image. That image is like years old. But every hurricane, every major hurricane that hits the U.S., there's always that image floating around. And if you're a journalist, you don't want to, I mean, you want to try and, like, report accurately. So you don't want to accidentally end up 
showing that image on your news broadcast or on your website and saying like, oh yeah, look at this. Um, so, you know, basic a basic reverse image search would of course show you that that image is indeed old. So that's, it's just, that's a very basic, like basic thing that I think journalism should, can benefit from and should absolutely incorporate into like any skill set. Of course, when it comes to like the more specialized stuff, like geolocation or like following planes using um, flight radar or, you know, following ships using marine tracker or whatever, I think there should be teams on a news outlet. News out, it's worth the time of news outlets to invest in teams that can work with more specific tools like that, because then you can tell stronger stories that are more like uh, in depth. Of course, the tough thing is uh, with journalism, it's, or with that kind of work, it's more, it takes longer. It takes a longer time to do, it, take, it can take like months. So it's kind of hard for a newsroom to invest resources into something like that if it's gonna take that long to work on it. A lot of newsrooms want to make money and whatnot. Um, we're fortunate at Newsy that I have given have been given like the the space and time to work on that, those kind of longer form investigations with Bellingcat, um, and we, we're pretty good about when working with Bellingcat. We're pretty good about making sure that whatever stories that we're working on, we're kind of like on a similar time expectation. Of course, like I mentioned earlier, occasionally there'll be like breaking news, and we'll try and get something out very quickly. <laughs> Um, which kind of benefits everybody, or, you know, it's, it benefits both of us, Newsy and Bellingcat, if we're able to get something out quickly. Um, but yeah, I think that's the main stuff I had to talk about. Um, the, uh, and I guess in the future, it's like where I would think, where I would see how journalism and open source would kind of like interact in the future, I think it'd be more, I would hope that it would be more in, integrated into a newsroom. Like I was saying with, like with verification, I, th I would hope that it becomes more of a standard skill set with journalism. And I think it kind of is it's been a while since I was in uh, J school journalism school, but I think I'm sure that's something that they're teaching now is like basic verification because that's important. <laughs> Um, but I would hope to see more newsrooms adopting like specific open source group, like um, like teams that are dedicated to working on these like more in depth stories, kind of like the New York Times Digital Investigations or BBC uh, BBC's Africa Eye. BBC, I, th I believe they've expanded their team to focus on Russia, China, and India, and it's like a it's an open source team. So you know it's always encouraging to see that. Uh, newsrooms are investing or, or taking steps like that. I would hope that like even on a local level, they would have more teams kind of dedicated to that kind of stuff um, on like a smaller level because it's easy for a large newsroom to kind of put that investment in and allow that time, like a lot of the time for those investigations. It's kind of harder for smaller newsrooms, I think. Um, or, you know, more sites like Bellingcat where it's like an open source dedicated site that um, only really does open source work and but also kind of has a journalism like integrated into it as well which i think I, a lot of people do with i think some people do like a very it's a kind of a, a mix because you get some sites that are very like niche and very like they have very like niche topics that they talk about like one type of plane or like one type of uh, munition but then like 
broadening that out and like maybe being able to like do use some like more reporting type techniques to kind of tell stories or tell somebody's story about a specific event that happened with that plane or that munition. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of where I, where I would hope it would be going in the future. I think fact checking is important, but I've, I think there's like a bit of fact checking fatigue in the U S maybe elsewhere as well, where people are kind of like distrustful fact checkers now. I think it's important to do continuous no matter what, like regardless of that. But it's also something that I think is um, a little bit more tricky. Uh, you don't want to like, I guess, hard, give people too much fatigue or something like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't know. John Carl, is there mm. do you have any uh, questions? Or? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much, Jake, uh, for your talk here. And uh, if you joined late, this is Jake Godin. He's a open source reporter and producer at Newsy. He is uh, the lead of the new C plus Bellingcat video series, which was nominated for Emmy and has won other awards uh, since it started a couple of years ago. So thanks, Jake, for uh, for uh, being here and, and giving us this talk about how you see this intersection between journalism and open source research. We do have a couple of questions. I have some myself, but I'm going to go to the audience. If you're listening to this, folks, you can go into the Stage Talk chat channel and you can type a question. Could be about anything that Jake said. Uh, don't be shy. Uh, we've got a couple in there already. So let me take a quick look here. So we've got one from Sarah. Sarah's one of our wonderful moderators here on the server. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming. Sarah's question is this. Have you noticed any common motivations for people who are doing things like saying that the Beirut attack, uh, sorry, that the, not the Beirut attack, so that the, the Beirut was struck by missiles, so that it, it was an attack, but it, it wasn't, uh, that January 6th was an inside job, etc. Uh, all of the narratives that you're disproving with the work that you're doing, do you see any common motivations for the people who are pushing those lies, that, that misinformation, that disinformation? Uh, I think it's, so, I think some of, uh, partly some of it's like trolling. I think some people are just like, kind of enjoy, um, I don't know, throwing a wrench in the, and seeing how viral it can go. I, that's it's certainly what it felt like some, a little bit with the like uh, Beirut port explosion, because it was like, who would even believe this missile video? But it turns out, you know, things like that can go viral. But, and I'll, I think that's also just some people just being, um, having a narrative stuck in their head and then they're just going to try and push it uh, despite, how much other evidence there is to disprove it. Um, I, I guess, I don't know if that's like, you know, that applies to every situation, but I think if there is a common theme, I do think that sometimes people are just, people just like kind of uh, doing this high level trolling or whatever in, in order to like just get people. Um, and it's important to like kind of push back against that because people will fall for that kind of stuff. And it, um, is you know important to get at least an accurate um you know reckoning out there so that people don't or if somebody does end up looking further after seeing that one claim they can actually find out that it's bunk thanks for that jake and that, that goes to a question i think that erides uh posted in the chat there he's asking I, I think at the beginning of your talk you talked about the beirut example how there were these sloppy Photoshop's out there showing supposedly a missile striking the, the site that caused this explosion. And Eridus is asking, well, you know, if they were sloppy, 
uh, you know, would you call them sloppy if they actually manage to make many people believe them? Um, and uh, and there's uh, there's an interesting um, sort of connection there to what you were saying now about like trolling people who might be doing things because they think they're that they're funny. So you might well, I'll let you answer the question. What do you think about that? Like sloppiness in photoshops, people believing what they're seeing when when at first sight you would think, well, surely nobody's going to fall for this. Right. Yeah. So I guess when I said it was sloppy, I guess it's I guess to like uh, an eye that has used to seeing that kind of stuff, it's sloppy. But I guess if you consider it, its impact and like how many people it could actually fool, um, I think you could still call it sloppy. But just you know, people are willing to, yeah, people are gullible about um, you know uh, a lot of different things, you know, and so it's it it can be pretty easy to get somebody to fall for something, um, even if it's sloppy. Uh, I I kind of think sometimes in that regard, it's like you know boomers on Facebook or whatever, posting just absolutely junk theories or, you know, insane conspiracy stuff. But it's like, wow, you know, that cannot, nobody could actually believe that. But yep, there are people that will believe that. I've fallen for a couple of um, of Elon Musk related, um, I don't know, disinformation slash misinformation on Twitter. And I find, I think a good rule of thumb is like the more surprised, the more shocked, the more outraged, the happier you are by a tweet or by like a picture that's when you have to be really careful when you hit retweet, right? So like, I'm so upset about Elon Musk in general and specifically uh, what he's doing to Twitter that I've had a couple of tweets that I've looked at that have said like, you know, I'm just giving you an example, like Elon Musk, I don't know, like beat up a bunch of puppies yesterday and I'll, and I'll go, oh my gosh, how dare he? And I'll like, I'll want to hit retweet and then I'll go, but wait, hang on a second. That's probably not true, right? So like anytime you feel a, a kind of an emotion, whatever that emotion is, that's when you got to be careful. Um, yeah. And, and, <laughs> exactly yeah oh god what does that say about <laughs> me i'm getting i'm getting old uh got a question here um for from slow t um uh, member in good standing of the community hi slow t thanks for being here uh question for jake how big of a problem is the financial side of journalism and news i hate the screamy headlines for clickbait oh, yeah. and i notice i stop following the news more and more what do you think about that jake yeah, I mean, well, I don't know. I'm, it's, I, I got into journalism to do. Uh, well, initially, I got into journalism to do games journalism, uh, but that kind of segued into uh, international. Journalism. There's still, there's still a chance, Jake. There's still a chance. You can there's, still, you can still turn <laughs> and, it around. You know, we have a series next level. But um, uh, anyways, so I think, yeah, yeah, I, I did not like. I'm not a big fan of broadcast journalism. I think there's. In the U.S., it can be pretty sensationalized, and uh, yeah, like Chiron's, you know, just trying to scream breaking in front of everything. I don't think is a great way to do things. Um, I think that's a little bit separate from the financial situation. I, I guess it could be it could intersect in a way that's like, oh, they need eyeballs, so they need money for money or whatever. Um, so maybe that's a part of it. But I think the U.S. especially just has a, a general problem with sensationalized news. Um, I think it's kind of, uh, I, I think Newsy, soon to be Scripps News, uh, does a, a, a decent job about kind of staying away from that. I work more on the digital, I guess, side of it, uh, where Newsy is like a, it's a broadcast channel. So, you know, they, we do TV news uh, here. It's a lot of it, you know, here in the States because Scripps, which owns Newsy, has a lot of local stations, um, which is uh, like a good way to, you know, distribute uh, our news 
but I um I think it's what is what's challenging is for a newsroom to in like to take a chance on like an open source team or a team that's specialized in like doing open source investigation because that I think it's expensive because you're paying people to take longer to do a story. And I think in some regards it can be considered like prestige reporting. So it's not going to like, you know, uh, bring in a ton of money relatively, I guess, but also you could, it, it's an important story to tell. And um, if you tell it using open source research and open source investigation, you'll, it will be a very well told story. And that's important for a newsroom, I think. And for me, as a non-manager, that's like Trump's um, payment issues. But I guess, you know, there's a bottom line that has to be made somewhere. Uh, but yeah, I think those are two slightly different top like situations, like the screaming headlines and then like the ability to pay employees. But also, I think they have some interesting. Thanks for that, Jake. And I should say that uh, one of the things that makes Bellingcat the best place in the world to work is that we don't work on clicks. So we don't have that financial yeah. sort of <laughs> ax over our head. So, you know, if I read an article and a million people read it, great. If one person reads it, it's almost like even better. Like it doesn't matter at all. Um, <laughs> Super neat. Yeah. We don't have, yeah. So we've never had to um, worry about that, I think. And I think that's um, one of the things that's led to, to I don't know, part of the success I think of Bellingcat is, is related to that. So thanks for that answer there, Jake. We've got one for, from Sati. Hello, Sati. Thanks for posting a question here. I'm going to tweak it a little bit. Uh, the question is, have you seen any indications that any, let, let's think about all of the projects that you've worked on that involved a coordinated effort from like a state actor, you know, conducting a disinformation campaign, and then you work on a project that revealed that campaign? So, um, yeah, I think we, we've done one story working with Bellingcat uh, early on in February before the uh, before Russia invaded Ukraine that had to do with like Russian disinformation leading up to uh, the invasion. Just specifically taking like the different narratives that were coming up, the different like trying to like attempted at, attempts at viral stories like, oh, there was Ukraine did a chlorine attack in, uh, you know, in the eastern Ukraine and the like, you know, the, the Russian back part. And so it was like, oh, uh, no, that turns out to be bunk. <laughs> or like, you know, those explosion sounds came from this other YouTube video. It was just poorly spliced in. So I think that's probably the closest. Um, I haven't really, I mean, I think what happens is oh. kind of like what happened with uh, the Tigray video. There was also um, kind of like the Ethiopian government was very much trying to say like, hey, this this is fake, you know. These these people weren't our soldiers, or these these people, you know, the people that they were killing were were combatants or whatever. So it's like, um, it's more of like in response. It's less of like a disinformation kind of like campaign. But I think it you notice that stuff as you're working on a story. You'll start to see it. Oh, uh, Jen, who's behind me, <laughs> says also. Go. Oh yeah, but that wasn't really government. Yeah, I guess Jen's pointed out that uh, we did a story early on in the COVID pandemic about like uh, disinformation that was coming out around the um, around COVID and how it was being pushed by certain people. It's less government, I guess, but more like still powerful actors or whatever. Mm. Um, I think that answered your question. 
question, I hope. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jake and Jen there. Um, and hi to Jen. Um, <laughs> I got, we got one from Polly here. Hi, Polly. Thanks for your question. The question is, how important is it to protect your identity as an open source oh. researcher? And what measures can we take to do that? That's a good question. Uh, I was actually, that's something I wrote down to try and I was going to cover. Uh, it's interesting because in journalism, uh, you're not necessarily, uh, it's not necessary to hide your identity or, you know, to, to be anonymous. But it also makes sense when you're doing open source kind of like as a more of a standalone thing uh, away from journalism that uh, it uh, that you you can be anonymous, that you can have like a, a name and, or, and, you know, use not your actual name. And in journalism, I think it's it doesn't like it doesn't matter. Like you could I think you could be anonymous uh, in journalism. I think you would probably have to still talk about, you know, let whoever you're working with, if you're working with an outlet, know who you are. But even if you're like on your own, um, you can be anonymous just fine. Uh, you just have to make sure that uh, it doesn't affect your credibility. But as long as you're, the nice thing about open source work is that it's kind of like you're, you can be checked. You know, people can do the same steps you did and come to the same conclusion. So uh, the credibility issue isn't as big. Um, as long as you're, you know, you're not, I mean, that's the nice thing about open source is that that, that ability to have it be checked by other people and, you, and yourself is important. And I think is a difference between that and some like random person who's anonymous posting some junk theory online or something like that. If you can back it up with open source work, then it's kind of hard. The credibility isn't as much of an issue. And that's why I think there's plenty, there's a lot of open source researchers who are anonymous. And I think um, it's, you know, it's to, it, part of the reason for that is because open source work doesn't, you know, it kind of adds an amount of credibility that, that you don't need to actually have your name, you know, behind something. Uh, that I hope that answered your question. And, and at the same time, though, I mean, an anonymous name is still a name. So you could still say, well, you know, this is an article by Caliber Obscura, right? And that's not that person's real name, but you can go, oh, I know that name because that, that person's right. like a weapons expert and I've known them for years on Twitter, right? Right. Um, and he's kind of, yeah, he's mm -hmm. built up an amount of work that is mm -hmm. like, back, that kind of backs up his name. Yeah. And what? I think so it might be harder to, well, I don't, I think it's about the same starting out if you're anonymous or not. I think it's just, it's the quality of your work and like, you know, the consistency of your act, you know, and being accurate that is important. And uh, as long as you keep the same name, you know, people will think of your name, that name whenever it yeah. comes to that. What, what's a name after all, right? Um, right, right. right. Yeah. Am I really Jake Godin? I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we don't know, right? Uh, but I, I, it's funny because I think a lot of us started out as, as, as anonymous accounts. I certainly did. Um, and I think the trend that I've seen is that once you get hired at a place and you have to start signing checks and like signing, <laughs> that's when you got to come out. Um, but I, I think, I think that's the trend. And that's one of the cool things as you're saying about the open source space is that you can work anonymously and put out really good work and, and be like known in the community as, as somebody who does good work and, you know, have a, have a nickname that you just made up. That's really, that's really cool. We got, yeah. uh, another question here. This is from Tristan. Hello, Tristan, friend and colleague. Tristan uh, from Bellingcat. Uh, Tristan is oh, asking, Tristan. "What considerations do you need to take? Do you need to think about when making a video story versus a traditional article, especially in the context of an open source research focus?" 
really good question there so, from Tristan. Thanks, Tristan. Yeah, this overlaps with stuff that I think Giancarlo actually uh, specializes in to an extent, uh, but you've talked about a lot, Giancarlo, which is, you know, protecting sources. So like in a protest video, you have to be aware of, um, you know, blurring faces and uh, or, you know, making sure that people are uh, kind of uh, protected from being pointed out, like you crop out that you can crop out their face or something like that. I think that's one of the main things that comes to mind. Um, also, graphic uh, content. Um, uh, a lot of like open source work and reporting is related to war crimes and massacres and whatnot. So you have to be careful about showing that, uh, especially if you're like Newsy on broadcast. Eventually, you know it'll end up on a broadcast television station, so you can't exactly show gore or anything like that. But fortunately, Jennifer is a whiz at After Effects and uh, video editing, so she's very much able to, um, to, uh, sorry, my cat's on the keyboard. So uh, she's very much able to like kind of censor uh, specific stuff that would be a little much or a little too heavy. Um, but yeah, I think, I think making sure that you, uh, if you have important, like a, a video of a protest or a video of an incident and there's somebody at risk of being identified uh, either by their voice or their, um, their face, then Censoring that or, you know, uh, changing the voice or removing the audio is important and doable and something you have to consider as opposed to just writing about something where you can just explain it and leave out the, you know, you don't have to worry about people being ID'd that way. Great. Thanks for that, Jake. Um, we got a couple minutes here, folks. If you have a last minute question, you can go ahead and ask it in the chat. Um, if we get to the hour and your question has not been answered, Maybe Jake uh, will respond yeah, via via text. Thank you, Jake. Uh, yeah. I have one here. We have about five minutes or so left, Jake. Um, I have a question here. One of the one of the themes of these talks, um, I hope, is that people get inspiration um, for how to get into this field. Um, so you know, I came to it a particular way. You you've just explained to us how you came to the field. It's always interesting to hear from guests how they got to do this kind of work. Everybody has a different story. So. Maybe uh, one way to ask a question uh, is, can you think of any open source resources, like a Twitter account that does something in particular that you think is doing good work that makes you go, wow, I'm really happy that this person is doing this. And maybe by giving those examples, you can you know, give people inspiration or give people ideas for the kinds of projects that they can do. So what are the projects on Twitter or elsewhere that you look to and you go, oh, that's so cool. Like, I'm really happy this person's doing this. I, um, I mean... So I would, I think a, a valuable resource to follow would be um, Bellingcat people, of course. Um, but uh, there's this verification uh, bot, I think it's called on um, Twitter. Uh, I think it's just called, yeah, ver uh, Quiz Time, at Quiz Time. They do daily challenges where they, it's just geolocation challenges mostly, but then there's also occasional chronolocation or other kinds of challenges. That's a good way, I really, think they're a valuable resource for anybody who's getting into open source. And it's, it's like anybody who's like, oh, how do I, you know, get better at doing this? And I always tell them follow quiz time because they it's a good way to sharpen your skills uh, with not just geolocation, but other things. And that um, it's not only that, but whenever people you can see people um, kind of responding to the tweets and showing that what they did to get to their 
conclusion. And that's a good way. So like you can find their old tweets from quiz time, old challenges, and then say, oh, you know, I'll try this myself. And then if you can figure it out or you can't figure it out, you can check your work against what whoever did end up answering it. Or you can find one of the ones that nobody's answered yet and then, you know, be the one to solve it. Um, it's a, I, I really like them and I've done, them. I haven't done them recently, but I've, I used to do them a lot more in the past. Um, I would also suggest following like the, I mean, uh, the people who host quiz time include like Christian from like New York times. He used to be a Bell cat person or like, um, Julia or Pete and like these different people who post on that, they're good to follow. I think in general, the open source community on Twitter is pretty like robust. And by following other people in the community on Twitter, you can see what they're talking about. But then also if somebody's like posting about a geolocation or they post about in a video, uh, you can try and geolocate it and, you know, kind of add to the conversation. Cause that's kind of how I got my like intro into um, actual open source stuff other than just searching for videos and stuff online was following the Syrian conflict and trying to geolocate like it, maybe there maybe Elliot shared a tweet about a potential chlorine attack in you know Sarakib or something like that it's like okay well I'm going to try and find as much information I can on that and then I'm going to just kind of share it if I find anything interesting just with Elliot or you know on his Twitter and make a thread out of it and then once the thread got going, other people might jump in and add information. So I just, I don't know. It, it's, I, I hope Twitter sticks around because this is an extremely valuable resource oh for gosh, uh, yeah. open source research. But um, who knows? Maybe we'll all be paying $8 a month and have like, you know, spam everywhere. Never, know. never, never. No, <laughs> you'll never get my money. Um, but thank, I, 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 I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate this. I got my fingers crossed that we, w we all wake up from this nightmare one day and he's not, he's not around and he's not running Twitter. We got one last question here from, from Geosint. Uh, Geosint is, he DM me this question. I, I didn't see it. I'm sorry. It's a really good one here. It has to do with people who are doing unethical open source investigations, quote unquote, people who are like sort of like pretending to do open source work. I can think of a couple of right. Russian accounts that do this kind of stuff. So the question is. Yeah. What is your opinion on ways to ensure like re the responsibility of those producing unethical open source investigations? It feels like they can really affect the work of others by eventually getting to a point where the term open source investigation is discredited and it becomes yeah. a kind of a dirty word. So how do you, what do you think about that? So, uh, well, with the, the term itself, I actually think um, I specifically try to use OSI instead of OSINT because OSINT is more like government related. And this is kind of a discussion within, well, I know Bellingcat uh, in the Slack, we've talked about it a little bit, but I think it's important to differentiate the two because you don't want to say like, or, you know, you don't want to, I mean, it's good to be less affiliated with, or people don't think you're affiliated with the government, you know? So it's like the less people think that the better. Um, and so kind of, straying away from the OSINT hashtag, unless you're um, actually involved with that, then, you know, cool. But uh, that's why, I, I don't know. It would be great if like OSI caught on instead of OSINT. But the thing is also on Twitter, OSINT is a really good hashtag for the community and a lot of people use it. So it's still a good thing to like kind of access the community through that hashtag. Um, in terms of like unethical open source reporting, uh, I think, one good thing to do is to point it out and debunk it. Um, I think uh, going, 
tackling those accounts like you would any other kind of disinformation is important. And um, it's it's always like kind of, you know, pushing the boulder up the hill because you're constantly having to like fight against these viral tweets or whatever. And they, the, the disinformation gets way more engagement than the correction. But I still think it's important to have that information out there. And uh, that way, other people who are looking into it can at least go back and see like, oh, look, this guy pointed out that that's complete BS. And they can respond to other people who are sharing it. So just getting it out there is important. Um, whether or not, you know, it gets a ton of engagement or whatever. It's just like, uh, I think that's one way to go about it. Um, I I mean, I, you know, you can't exactly force them to shut down their, <laughs> whatever they're doing. Uh, but countering that disinformation with like accurate information or showing like why it's bad. I mean, sometimes it's kind of a joke and it's like, it's like when Russia released their like, you know, they did a, they did a missile strike on a shopping mall and they released their, their annotated image of a sad imagery showing like oh we actually were attacking this train yard nearby and it's like dude <laughs> you hit that train track got hit incidentally because you aimed the missile at the mall <laughs> or you aimed the missile at the train yard and it just you know is completely inaccurate and it hit the mall anyways but you can point out that like oh uh, looking at sad imagery and looking at you know people's videos you can't see any damage done to the train yard as opposed to the mall which is like you know definitely got hit so I think uh, pointing out, uh, pointing it out on Twitter, getting it out on a blog or something is important, a good way of tackling it. Perfect. Thank you for that answer. And we're just about at time. So if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, uh, make sure to, jo to join the Discord server. There's going to be a link in the SoundCloud link uh, to the server. So you can ask our guest questions, like all of the wonderful people who ask Jake questions tonight. This is Jake Godin, reporter and producer at Newsy. Thank you so much for dropping by, Jake, and for sharing your knowledge and your experience with us. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live and ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound.